1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and in this episode we're immersing ourselves in the history of the Battle of Britain. Over 80 years ago, in September 1940, the Luftwaffe made a gigantic aerial assault on London in the belief that the RAF was down to its last few fighters. They hoped this would be the decisive clash that finished them off and would bring Britain to the negotiating table. To find out more, Dan went to Bentley Priory, the HQ of RAF Fighter Command, and he met with historian Stephen Bungie, who explains exactly why the RAF won the Battle of Britain.
2: This is Headquarters Fighter Command, and one of the key things that happened here was processing information that came in from radar. But the way it worked is absolutely brilliant, conceptually far ahead of the time. This system is in fact the ancestor of the internet we know today. This is um, Dowding's headquarters, his office, his telephones, chair he sat in, not the original I suspect, but um, this is where uh, the man who masterminded all of this, uh, spent his time.
3: And so he didn't. what's exciting about this space is he, he built and designed this system and then he operated it all from here, from this desk.
2: Yeah, well, he made big calls, I suppose. Um, he kept himself out of day-to-day operations. He made sure that they were working properly. His main job in the summer of 1940 was making sure that Fighter Command was properly resourced. getting pilots from elsewhere, from training command, beating up the, the training units to provide them, making sure that aircraft production supply were working, but they weren't really a problem. And then working on new problems. So he was, as it were, thinking about the next battle while other people were fighting this one, and he spent an inordinate amount of time on night air defence and working out how to do that. Because at the time, in the summer of 1940, we were, we were helpless at night, we had absolutely nothing. You're kidding me. Sir so Hugh Dowding was busy thinking about the blitz the that was one. to come. Yeah, the one that was to come. No, uh, He actually wrote a letter that he had distributed across Fighter Command to uh, his fighter boys, as he called them, saying, you know, you're not going to be seeing very much of me over the coming months, but my thoughts will always be with you. And I'm working on some other things to help you. So, you know, over to Keith Park, as it were. To his subordinates. To his subordinates.
3: Okay, well, let's, let, let's take it right back. He's sitting here in the late 1930s. He's scribbling out, he's typing out. What are the decisions he makes and how do those win the Battle of Britain?
2: Okay, well, his main decisions at that time are really about putting the whole system together. Um, he, he's got scientific committees working. He's got to sort out um, things to do with aircraft armament. He started his time in research and development. So an awful lot of it was about managing technical experts and putting it all together in such a way that the whole thing worked. He had to work with civilian organizations, um, such as the post office, which at the time was contained what we now know as BT as well. Thousands and thousands of miles of telephone cable were laid power had to be got to uh, the operations rooms right across the country, and you had to make sure the national grid didn't uh, fall apart. It was a bloody good job we had a national grid, actually, because a lot of countries didn't. They had regional grids. Without the national grid, well, very difficult to say whether the whole thing could have worked or not. He was commissioning people to build underground bunkers. He got this place armoured, and he put the filter room down there. Thousands and thousands of things he had to deal with, he Talk, had to deal talking with... Talking uh, the
3: cars, company something. that made Spitfires? Yeah, no, yeah. he
2: was involved in all that, in the specification that led to the Spitfire and the Hurricane. Well, how many guns they were going to have, you know, the, the eight gun decision, he was a part of that. That was his department that did all the work that proved that they would actually need eight machine guns, if that was what it was going to be. And yet, at the same time, he has this vision of how this thing can all work. So at the same time, it's very unusual to find this in one person, He's very detail oriented and very practical and very visionary and very conceptual. You, you usually, you find people are one or the other and he was both. That was the characteristic of his genius. And then of course, when the threat comes, he has to work out how to deal with it. So he's got all these resources. How's he gonna deploy them? And that comes down to strategy. Now, what you do as a defender is gonna depend on what the other guy's gonna do. So what are the Germans trying to do? Well, the problem they have is that they never really made up their minds. So, are we going to cut England off and to lay siege? Are we going to seek a political decision or are we going to prepare for an invasion? They never really decided, um, and that has direct operational consequences. So, for example, Luftwaffe go off and they bomb Southampton because it's a port. And the army come along and say, Oi, what are you doing bombing Southampton? We're gonna need every tonne of British port capacity we have once we land or we'll lose the build-up battle. So, oh, terribly sorry. Oh, you you are going to invade, are you? Yeah, well, uh, maybe. Um, Okay, yeah. So do we or do we not? This went on the whole bloody time. Fighter command strategy was very, very clear. You could formulate it by saying that Dowding and Park together said we're gonna defeat every serious raid in order to deny the enemy air superiority. We're not that worried about how many, we're just going to inflict a price on every incursion into British airspace with bombers that that can do damage. Send over fighters, that's fine. They can burn up petrol at 30,000 feet over Kent if they like, and then go home, we'll leave them. They want us to come up and fight big air battles with their 109s, we're not going to play their game, they're going to force them to play our game. You send a bomber over and there's spitfires and hurricanes all over it. But you leave the fighters alone. And they keep going. The idea is you, you, you retain the ability to keep going whatever they do indefinitely. So you can serve your own strength. And eventually the other lot are going to realise they're getting nowhere and give up. There was an alternative idea, which was to try to engage in large air battles in order to inflict large casualties. But that's actually what the Luftwaffe wanted us to do. <laughs> And big air battles don't actually cause high percentage casualties, they're just very confusing. There's no such thing as decision in an air battle, it's always attrition. So that, the clarity of that message, filtered on down right into the way they ran operations. But he was very controversial and there was opposition within the Air Force himself. There was opposition within Fighter Command that came from Sholto Douglas who was uh, Deputy Chief of the Air Staff in the Air Ministry. And, of course, from Lee Mallory in 12 Group, who thought that he was mishandling the battle. It ought to be fought in a very different way, amassing large numbers of fighters and indulging in large air battles. That was their counter-strategy. And there was a lot of scheming that went on. It was very political. He was not liked by some very senior officers of the RAF. The man who who, who portrays him, I think, in the most um, insightful way was Frederick Pyle, who was actually an army man who was the head of AA command. And he worked together with Dowding, of course, with the anti-aircraft defenses, had to be coordinated with all of this. And he referred to um, Dowding as the most outstanding airman he met in the war. But he said he was an odd fish, (laughs) a difficult man, a stubborn man. Um, And his nickname, of course, was Stuffy because he was extremely formal and very, um, very reluctant to praise, shall we say, a certain type, rather austere. But actually very humane i mean he had a run-in with trenchard during the first world war over trenchard's ruthless use of pilots in the rfc and you know they wanted to ban parachutes and so on and dowding opposed this so trenchard didn't like him and that eventually um led to his dismissal and his removal from fighter command but that's that's another story now, at the time, I think one would have to say he had all the political backing he needed, uh, particularly from Churchill, and all the resources he needed, because you think about it, the country was spending unprecedented amounts of money on the Air Force, on things like radar, and nobody knew if they were going to work. <laughs> I'd done this before, you know, it's taking huge risks, you know, similar in order of magnitude, I guess, to the building of the dreadnoughts before the First World War, which was sort of a big risk. But at least you knew the thing was going to work, but nobody knew whether the system was actually going to work or not, it was all put together. So unlike other great commanders in British history, Nelson.
3: Yeah. Nelson fights sea battles in his prime on ships that hadn't changed that much since he was yep. a boy sailor. Yep. Dowdig sitting in that chair, is, is presumably so trying to work out how you bring in technology that is just, I mean, cutting edge hardly even covers it. No,
2: absolutely. Nobody's done this before. So military technology starts to change during the 19th century. I mean, if you look at an infantryman who fought with Marlborough at Blenheim, Shifting forward 100 years on the Battle of the Waterloo, he could pick up everything within five minutes. Not a lot's changed. Shifting forward another 100 years to 1915, ain't got a clue what's going on, can't fire the weapons, and everything he's been taught to do about standing upright in the brand new uniform is going to kill him within two seconds at the front. Right, so everything's changed. Now we're going a step further in the 20th century, where we're dealing with this thing, the aeroplane, that has doubled in speed, range, size every 10 years or so since it was invented. And it's continuing and it's speeding up, that rate of change is speeding up. You've got this new technology, radar, that the Germans knew all about, by the way, but they developed it in the German Navy to deal with shipping. And we're using what actually to them was a rather crude version of it. But well, all sorts of problems come up. So after the war started, they find they're getting they're picking up signals from behind the stations and they're rather getting rather confused about what's coming in and coming out. Identification, friend and foe, is still a problem. They got a basic solution, but there's a big cock up just a few days into the war, there's as the Battle of Barking Creek when spitfires attack hurricanes, because of the teething troubles. So you imagine you've got this brand new IT system that is leaping a few generations, um, and you've got to work it up, and you've got to have people who understand how to make it work as well. So you've got a lot of training to do. So there's this sort of race to get it ready in time, and it meets its most severe test. Um, Luckily, um, just short of nine months into the war, when they had a chance to try it out.
3: There's, there's never been an no, air no, battle no, no, before, no. has
2: No, no. The, the, this is the first pure air battle there's, there's ever been. In the First World War, of course, there was a lot of air activity. Uh, the main thing, though, was to clear the airspace behind the enemy lines so that your own reconnaissance aircraft could do spotting for the artillery. It was subservient to the army. The RFC was part of the... Army. It only became an independent force in 1918. Likewise the Navy used aircraft for its own purposes largely reconnaissance. You need to control of the air for that reason. This is something quite different, right? This is, you know, the, the whole question of whether we stay at the war or not being resolved solely in the air. And the threat of bombing was also an unknown. I mean in the 1930s people's attitude to being bombed from the air conventionally is rather similar to our view of nuclear war. I mean, H.G. Wells writes these science fiction novels where it's just devastation. Uh, The civilian authorities expected London to have a few hundred thousand casualties in the first weeks of the war. They expected everybody to panic. They thought it quite likely the Germans had dropped gas on them. Uh, All sorts of things that didn't happen. Nobody knew London could take it, as they said, until London actually did take it. And people didn't panic. And they did go into their shelters and they followed the air raid warnings. And in fact, every city on earth took it, as it were. Um, A lot of them might take and Berlin on a far bigger scale than London ever did. But just threatening the bomb was seen as, unless you could stop them, was seen as terrifying. And Baldwin's famous phrase from 1934, I'm sorry to tell you, the bomber will always get through. So the only answer is for us to kill more of their women and children than they kill of ours, was terrifying. And nobody had challenged it, except the guy who sat there, who listened to said this, and they said, no, the way to stop it is the fear of the fighter.
3: So Dowding believed you could stop the bomber.
2: Dowding flew in the face of conventional wisdom, indeed within the Air Force itself, which is why the Air Force was building up its so-called strategic bombing fleet from Bomber Command that was going to, so if they do it to us, we'll do it to them only more, right? So the death toll is going to rise and rise. And Dowding says, no. If we have fighters that are good enough and are able to control them properly, if you give me 52 squadrons of them and keep them at strength, I can defend this country against all comers indefinitely. And in the end, if they've got an ounce of sense, they'll stop because they'll realize they're just getting nowhere. And that's exactly what happened. So what exactly was it? that this genius had been
3: squirrelling up in this office. What was that system that allowed the RAF to win? It's
2: the most interesting bit of all, Dan. And to show you that, we need to get next door. Okay. So this
3: is a sort of reconstruction, is it?
2: Yes, that's right. So this is um, showing the sort of thing that used to go on downstairs in, in the filter room. If so you know what that is, you've got to get an idea of what this system was designed to do. Uh, the military would call it a C3 system, Command, Control and Communications. But you can think of it as basically an information processing and communication system. So you start off with information from two sources. One is radar, looking out to sea, but it's blind when an aircraft crosses land. So it's backed up, this most advanced of technologies, by the oldest of technology, what Churchill called 30,000 pairs of the Mark I eyeball. There they are, the Observer Corps. Um, there were posts all over the country. Um, Some of the most dangerous raids that came in at low level underneath the radar were in fact tracked by the Observer Corps. All that is fed in here, so Headquarters Fighter Command is the information processor and the key thing is the filter room. So it's working out what all these blips on the radar mean, how many raids there are, because you're getting different radar stations uh, getting the same raid, what height they're flying at, that was one of the hardest things to estimate, and their strength and their trajectory, where they were going to and they're all laid out on the plotting table here. So the plotting table
3: is, we now are so familiar with the air traffic control, with yeah. the screen, and yeah. this is just a, this is the first great that's, airspace management Yeah, that's system.
2: basically yeah. what it is. Uh, here you can, you can see it here, people lying over, and oh, on here you can see the, the blocks that would have been pushed around. And so what people saw here is then reproduced exactly, the whole thing standardized group. So we're here at the top, of the operations room, a filter room in, in, in headquarters here, with all the information coming in. It's worked out which raid is which, it passes that information down to the group. So that's 11 group covering the southeast, 10 group southwest, 12 group the Midlands, and 13 group Scotland. They are the people who then make the decision about what to do about the raids. They control the aircraft, and so, someone will say in 11 group, okay, call Biggin Hill, Scramble 72 and 92 Squadrons, Patrol Mason, Angels 25. But the group won't send those signals out because it's got too many aircraft to be able to deal with. The next level down is the sector. And the sector is an individual airfield Tangmere, Biggin Hill, Kenley, Hornchurch, North in 11 group who would also have a few satellites where some squadrons will be stationed. They usually controlled about three squadrons each and they would actually ring the bell, call out squadron scramble, and then talk to the pilots as they took off. That information would be fed back up into groups so the group knew where its forces were from released to engaged and all the stages in between. And fighter command here just kept on updating the information that came in through someone called a teller they would update the information every two minutes. And so all these little markers would be moved. So you're, you're dealing in, in three dimensions here. You visualize three dimensions uh, and time, right? So you've got height, direction and time. And it's all done using color. It's all very clear. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do in it. And nobody else in the world had anything like this.
3: And it's so interesting hearing you talk about it because for much of military history, you think about Napoleon in Russia. The problem is complete lack of information. You've got no mm. idea what your enemy's doing. Mm. We're now entering that very modern world that we all know very well today. We've yes. got far too much information yes. coming out.
2: Yes. There was some uncertainty around the information. The, the most dodgy bit of information was height, hard to estimate, and pilots knew that. So they always used to, if they're ordered to patrol at you know, 15,000 feet, they'd make it 18, just to be sure, because they would to be on top. And uh, there were missed interceptions because of that, because they're going up too high. But generally, it gave them a vivid, real-time view of the battlefield, which is something a commander had never had before and able to act on it very accurately. I mean, if you wanted to understand how it works in, in terms we're all familiar with, this little thing, right, you, this is radar. There you are out, carrying radar in your pocket and a German bomber. That tells Google, which is Headquarters Fighter Command, where you are and what you're up to. Google passes that information on to Google Ads, which is Group, and they then, when you get a ping, it means that an advertiser has intercepted you and you've been told there's 25% off today. It's exactly the same principle. This was revolutionary at our time. This is part of our daily lives. The main difference is that this uses digital technology, that uses analog technology, but the basic design principles are the same.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.
3: And so you mentioned analog technology. All I'm so struck by all of these being connected by phone lines. And you've pointed out in, in your books that it was almost impossible to destroy this network. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, if you think of a traditional command and control system as used in the First World War, you have a telephone line from the Brigadier down to the Battalion Headquarters in the front line. The next minute a shell lands and cuts the line, dead, they're cut off. Command and control is no longer possible. However, if you cut a bit of a a net, the information flows around the hole. So, even if you manage to take out one of the operations rooms at the sector level, then the information flowed down, round it. So one stage, Biggin Hill went down for an afternoon. So Kenley and Hornchurch took over control of the squadrons. The Germans noticed nothing. And at the same time, it's self-repairing. So once a raid's gone, WAFs come out with red flags to mark unexploded bombs. Chaps with shovels have some gravel to fill in the bomb craters. They'd already thought that that might happen, so they stockpile the stuff. And the GPO come in, GPO engineers as they then were, and twist all the telephone lines together. The biggest vulnerability was power. And both Biggin and Kenley went down because power lines were hit. They did, of course, have emergency generation. But what they did in both those cases was to evacuate the operations room, which is doing all this stuff, to the neighboring village, one to Biggin Hill, uh, and the other, Kenley, evacuated to an old butcher shop in Caterham Village. Um, I've spoken to the guy who who used to patrol the, um, the telephone lines running down from there to Kenley. And he said he used to patrol it with a shotgun. Um, I said, John, what are you going to do with a shotgun against German paratroopers? He said, oh, so I won't worry about paratroopers. He said, it's the bloody squirrels. they gnaw through them. Can you imagine these SS squirrels um, you know, gnawing through, paralyzing our system. It's a secret enemy. They probably achieved more than the
3: German They would have done, yeah. Uh, and what's striking is that you talk about setting up it. You just need a phone. So just like we go, I'll set, off a, I'll, I'll set, up, a, I'll set up a workstation off-site. You just need no, a phone. No, I mean, and...
2: yeah, OK, so they, they evacuated the Ops to Caterham Village down, down the hill. They could have evacuated it to India, in principle. It was your back office operation. We're doing exactly the same thing. As long as they can talk to each other and they share information, Ops, your uncle. Um, and they had a third line beyond that. Now, if I'd wanted to win the back, if I'd been in charge of the Luftwaffe, I, I wouldn't have even have bothered attacking the airfields or the radar stations. I'd have, to start off with, I'd have attacked the national grid. I, I'd have hit every power station in southeast England. Because in order to defeat the system, you've got to make it blind and dumb before you do anything else. And if you've made it blind and dumb, then you can start to paralyse it, because then I could do surprise attacks and catch aircraft on the ground. Uh, but uh, too many radar stations to take out, very difficult targets. They managed a few, then they gave up. They naively thought, oh, it doesn't matter if they know when we're coming because we want to engage them in the air anyway. That's how clever the leadership on the other side was. So I think, yes, you, you could have taken out this system, but it would have been an act of imagination that would have been impossible for someone at that stage. And, and let's just talk about because now this is the system
3: that basically everyone in the world uses. Everyone in the world uses this, yes. But before this, months, so in the, in the fight for France, Nothing. It, it's a matter of, Take your lads, go on a patrol, oh, sleep, you go on see patrol. if you see any Germans yeah. coming That's over. That's right.
2: There. So you'd go off on your dawn patrol, as you did in the First World War, and if you saw some enemy aircraft, you'd uh, call for help. And, I mean, this, the alternative to this was standing patrols, and that would have used up hours and hours and hours of flight time and would have required many more than 52 squadrons. They still did a lot of standing patrols, actually. If you look at the sortie rates, fighting commander flying a, a lot of them, especially over the Channel, uh, where the warning times were short, which is why Dowding did not want to Fight the Luftwaffe over the channel he wanted them to attack Britain because if they did he knew it could break them as he put it uh, but they did that as backup you know it's very robust right so you lose a few radar stations the others take over lose one ops room the others take over um, if you, you you back it up with the observer corps, you don't place your faith in this new technology you back it up you back up what you know from this system with standing patrols as well they used to send single spotter aircraft over if they had the big raids coming in from Calais they send someone in the Spitfire up at 25,000 feet just to check where they all were and see where the top cover was hanging out.
3: And check that the radar information and was correct. It
2: was great. yeah. So, so you get a big raid coming
3: from Calais. Here we are. They come over to Dover. They're being tracked all the way across. Yep. And, squ- and, and pilots can be having a nice old snooze till the last minute. Pretty much. And they're yeah. told when and where to engage Yeah, they, be, they had
2: various states of alert. Well, the, 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 the nice old snooze is you're released <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then you have readiness uh and then you're scrambled you know there are different different but, but levels you mean so you not, you're not know. exhausted flying around no. in
3: circles waiting for the enemy no yeah. it
2: saves fuel and it bubble it saves pilots time because it was absolutely draining on uh, the individuals concerned good job they were young
3: so is this the place to talk about the myth of the Battle of Britain, because I was always brought up to say the Luftwaffe was much bigger than the RAF. They mm-hmm. came across in these massive formations. Yes. It was nip and tuck, especially that last yep. week of August, right. before the Germans changed strategy and yes. attacked London. It was close, they might have won.
2: Mm. I don't think the Luftwaffe ever came close. I think the key word, if you give it, want me to say in one word, why did we win, the answer is strategy. And of course you don't see strategy, strategy is invisible. It's all this thinking that's going on behind it. So, yes, the Luftwaffe as a whole was bigger than Fighter Command, of course, because most of them were bombers, which were mainly targets. If you look at the fighter-fighter ratio, the Germans start off with a small advantage, but they lose strength because they're unable to replace them as fast as we are. And we actually gain strength. We actually new squadrons uh, come into Fighter Command. You know, the Poles were not there in the beginning. The Canadians were not there at the beginning. He actually gets reinforcements as well as replacements. So Fighter Command strength remains steady. We are outproducing them in aircraft by a factor of two to one. And this is a battle of attrition, what matters is your ability to continue. We had one week when we started losing more pilots than we were replacing, but both and Park were on to why. It was because raw squadrons were being sent from the north as replacements, I don't mean raw pilots, everybody dealt with raw pilots, but they can learn from the experienced ones on the squadron. This is where no one on the squadron has been in battle before and no one knows what to do. Those nine squadrons suffer forty percent of fighter commands casualties and make twenty-five percent of the claims, most of which are probably erroneous. So they're suffering a lot more damage than they're meeting out. And Dowding changed that system on September the seventh. He saw what was happening. The other thing that changed was that the Germans had realised they, they really wanted fighter battles, so they increased the ratio of fighters to bombers from like sort of three to under five to one. Um, but they couldn't sustain it because they were running out of fighters, and so they're having smaller and smaller forces. Acting as escorts around any given set of bombers, and so that had to change. Um, and if they do that, they're just sending over more targets. And I don't think the target itself changed a thing on the air fighting, whether they're attacking Biggin Hill or Docklands. Is neither here nor there where the bombs drop, because a they're very close. I mean, you can stand on the end of Biggin Hill runway, I have done, and see Canary Wharf clear as day when the when the weather's okay. It's only going to be significant if you're doing serious damage to airfields that you're taking them out. Now living under an airfield that's being attacked and the most intensively attack was Biggin Hill is a very unpleasant experience but the only really serious target there is the ops room. You can blow up hangars, you can crater the runways, you don't need the hangars, you can disperse the aircraft around the side, you you berth people off-site of course in the village. And to show you how important that damage was, one day in the beginning of September Group Captain Grice uh, who was the station commander at Biggin Hill decided he had enough and he got on the, up in his magister and took a German reconnaissance bomber's eye view of his station and saw that there was one hangar left and at six o'clock in that evening there was a big bang and the last standing hangar on Biggin Hill went up in smoke and in the morning another Dornier came along took some photographs went back and uh, the Luftwaffe decided that Biggin Hill was finished wrote it off and never attacked it again Uh, Group Captain Grice was put on a charge for willful damage to the King's property, but he was tried by an RAF court martial, who found him not guilty, and they all went off to the White Hart, embraced it and got pissed. (laughs) So, because the Germans had such a naive view of what damage they were doing, and they didn't even know what an operations room was, that they didn't realise that all this sound of fury was really doing nothing. When Park wrote about this incident, He says, I wish to impress upon you, he's writing to the Air Ministry, that uh, there was a period in time when the attacks on our infrastructure were threatening to create a serious loss in efficiency. Very serious indeed. Now, you imagine you're the German commander, you've been giving a maximum effort for four weeks, and the enemy is worried that they may start losing efficiency, and you think you've brought him to his knees, and he's about to surrender. I don't call that a narrow margin.
3: So it's fascinating because the clue should be in the title we're here in
2: fighter command headquarters mm-hmm. but they're not doing that much commanding no they're not they're actually not doing any commanding at all <laughs> they're doing information processing the commanding is being done here at group command is giving direction telling people what to do the overall strategy defeat every serious raid in order to deny air superiority has already been fixed it's in everybody's head that comes from Dowding. then he stops he doesn't interfere And then if you consider the number of things that have to be done, I mean, when you're controlling squadrons, you've got to know where your guys are. So they had another system called Pipsqueak that's sending information back here that has to be processed on another frequency. And then they got the IFF system, the identification friend and foe system working for them as well. You imagine trying to get all that at a national level in this room, forget it. Part of the genius of this system is that it realizes what work needs to be done by whom everybody knows exactly what their role is they don't interfere with each other they trust each other but everybody is working on a common shared understanding of what is going on and that i have to say is a key to operational effectiveness in any business organization today just as much as it was for then and there's a lot of them could learn a lot of lessons from this
3: Stephen, what i find so inspiring about the dowding system is it's such a clever wonky technocratic response but at the sharp end of it there are unbelievably brave young men yeah, sh- sweating uh, the, and fighting and dying. And the bleeding. fighter
2: boys yes absolutely um, and I was privileged to get to know some of them they, they certainly were remarkable chaps but one of the things that struck me really powerfully was their modesty uh, in that I mean, it was against the ethos of fighter command to shoot a line, as it were, to show off. It was sort of the opposite of profiling yourself on Facebook today. <laughs> and they all played it down because they understood that they were part of a bigger whole. Yeah. And, you, you know, how did you manage to do it? Oh, well, I was, I was just doing my job. I mean, one, one of the guys I got to know first was this, this fellow here. Now, that's a portrait of him from, from the time. who uh, was Bob Doe, who first popped up on a... Channel 4 series in 1990 and he lived locally I got in touch and we got to know each other rather well he was an unknown ace he got 17 kills and he was a gardener's son from Rygate which is not far from where I live and um, he he tells his story of being the worst pilot in the squadron he said I was the worst pilot in the squadron I didn't like being upside down he said, but you know the 13th of August came, and uh, there he was in 10 group, the airfield had been bombed, and then they were scrambled. And I said, so what persuaded you to take off? He said, well, I knew I was going to die, he said, but um, I was more afraid of being thought a coward. So he took off and stuck to his leader, and he came back, having shot down two, and one my nose. And then he had a bit of a think about what he was doing and changed his tactics. He used to fly in slippers or socks, so he had a better feel for a Spitfire. And he was a dead shot, which was very rare. And the reason was, being a gardener's son, his, his dad used to take him out when he was gardening, when he was young, and he gave him a little air rifle. And he used to shoot the heads off tulips. And he got his eye in that way. And once you control the Spitfire instinctively, you could do the same thing. Wonderful fellow. He, he's one of the many who told me that he hates being thought sort of as a hero, so I asked us to do my job. But, but, he, but, he's sort of, but he's right, because of the
3: Downing system, he's right that he was obviously incredibly brave, tenacious, accurate, yeah. but he was put in the right equipment in, the, in right the right place, place
2: at the right time, by yeah.
3: a big system. And the other thing that always strikes me about these Battle of Britain pilots and aces, they were often promoted, they were promoted, within, rather than keep them on the front line shooting down yes. enemy aircraft, the, like really? people like Sailor Milan, I guess, they were promoted. They were, were promoted. They, they, they were the Yes, system and, of, and
2: I think, well, actually, say so that there's stories where he, he led 74, I mean, he was one of the finest pilots we had. Very hard disciplinarian, but also very generous. I mean, he would deliberately take up young pilots as his wingman, but in contrast to Gallant he'd allow them to get the kill he'd protect them to give them confidence and build them up and these guys didn't care that much except for a few of them, a few of them did most of them didn't care that much about what their individual scores were whereas that's all that seemed to matter to some of the uh, German pilots some of the aces and of course it was also in many ways a um, meritocracy I mean that, that's that famous figure up there in uh, in color that's ginger Lacey. now ginger uh was son of i think a butcher uh from yorkshire and he was a sergeant pilot and he flew with 501 squadron but he was the best pilot on the squadron and once they were in the air they followed him (laughs) on the ground they had a separate mess for the sergeants they weren't supposed to mix with the officers officers and gentlemen you see don't mix with butchers sons from yorkshire but up in the air it was meritocratic and um of course, he was promoted afterwards, and gradually these class distinctions wore away, but they're, they're very strong, of course, in, in, initially.
3: And you and I have been spending all our time here in this stately home, thinking about this wonderful system and radar and tech, but we, we, we shouldn't forget that up these guys on the front line, at the sharp end, it was war.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, there was nothing very romantic about it. I mean, you talk about knights of the air and so on and jousts, but these sort of one-on-one combats were extremely rare. A few of them took place, but very rare. Largely, uh, success was about creeping up on someone from behind and stabbing him in the back and running away before any of his friends could get you. Uh, I'm not sure how heroic that is, but that's basically what success was about.
3: And it was, I mean, they, they were knackered. Ah, They were going out five times a day.
2: And- well, to go back to Bob, so he went into action on August the 15th, and was continuously in action for three weeks up to September the 7th, when his squadron leader was uh, shot down. They withdrew his squadron, two, three, four, to Cornwall, to St. Evil. And um, I said, he, he'd been able to tell me, if, if I named it, I'd say, say, so what were you doing on the afternoon of 18th of August? Yeah. Oh, right, that was the raid on Portland, and I was eating minute by minute what he was doing. I said, so, okay, so it's September the 8th, you're in Cornwall, what do you do? He said, I have no idea. He said, well, I can't remember anything about the next two weeks. Really? Why? Because so, I was asleep most of the time. He just, he lived on adrenaline and went clunk. And you, you can see it in their eyes. Sometimes you, you get these 20-year-olds with great black rims around their eyes. That's not tiredness. That's exhaustion. That's quite different. They, they would, I mean, you, you think they'd sort of go to bed straight away. Actually, used to party all night. So they'd get two or three hours sleep a night. They'd be down the, the white half if they were big Hill. hell because... They're so tensed up. After you've been in five air fights, there's no way you're gonna relax and have a nice snooze. Uh, you're either gonna collapse or you're gonna keep going. And they kept going until they collapsed. And then they'd be up before dawn and do it again. And you keep going for so long and then bonk. And he describes that point where he didn't have to anymore so we went bonk, almost in a coma. I think he, would, he, he was very close to being in a coma for two weeks. And, and then he went back.
3: <laughs> yeah. And uh, some of the descriptions of the burns, you know, the hurricane, particularly, ah, wasn't yes. it, used to... yes, Uh
2: Yeah, the problem there was the, um, the two very big wing tanks. You see, the wings of a Spitfire were too narrow to put petrol in it, so you just said a tank in front of the... Um, so, it, so it was be- behind the engine and behind the armour plating in the back, so of course it did catch fire, but it was less vulnerable target. If you've got the, you know, the hurricane-shaped, you've got these two huge wing tanks that are just down there, either side of the cockpit. There's no, there's no panel between them and the cockpit, and that's the centre of the target if you're firing at a hurricane. So you get one incendiary bullet in there, and whoosh! And the flames appear to come from in front, but in fact they're coming from up here, and so you've got a few seconds to get out. And then the question then is... Um, how much of your skin is left, or whether, it and how much of you is left, and they were all, most of them were whipped off to the Victoria Hospital in East Grinstead, but they came under the care of Archibald Bakingdoe, who developed new grafting techniques uh, and reconstructed them effectively, and that was pioneering uh, medical work at the time, and created the Guinea Pig Club. In fact, there's a picture of one pilot who's a Czech. You can see. He's been through McIndoe's treatment as a member of the Guinea Club and that's how they would end up looking.
3: And actually, I always like to spare thought for the German pilots, because the Brits had it hard, but the Germans running out of fuel over the channel, ditching.
2: Oh Yes, I mean, it was worse for them because uh, I mean, they didn't have so many green pilots on the squadron because they just didn't have enough replacements coming in. So the old hands used to have to keep on going, um, as Ulrich describes. The more senior commanders tended to have a mysterious case of appendicitis at some stage and uh, be forced to leave their unit to go to hospital back in Germany. Uh, there was an old joke uh, of amongst German pilots that when you met a Battle Britain veteran, you said, oh, where's your appendectomy scar? Here's mine. And guys like him, you know, he was sort of middle ranking officer, well, lowest middle ranking officer, we were getting seriously pissed off because they felt let down by the system, the whole thing seemed pointless, and a lot of their senior officers seemed to be putting their own interests first. So there was a steady build-up of sort of crisis in morale in the Luftwaffe that was building up throughout August and reached its peak in, in September because they all realised it was pointless. I mean, people will carry on. People will sacrifice an awful lot and endure great suffering and danger if they think they're getting somewhere. But if they think it's all pointless, that's when morale starts to drop. And it was becoming apparent to most of them that it was pointless.
3: Last thought, surrounded here by the pictures of some of the more famous of the few. What did this this victory mean? What did the Battle of Britain mean?
2: Well, the Battle of Britain is often said, victory uh, prevented invasion. It certainly put the seal on invasion because it was a necessary but not sufficient condition of the invasion taking place. I think the German Navy breathed a sigh of relief when it was postponed. But I think the most important thing was that it strengthened Churchill's position in Parliament. After the battle, Churchill's position was pretty much untouchable. There were a couple of boats of no confidence later in the war because the war continued to go from bad to worse. But they were very easily defeated. And that meant that we were going to continue fighting. It also was the first time that Hitler had actually suffered a reverse, they pretended they hadn't, but it was pretty clear to everyone that they finally met their match. And it had an important effect in the United States. We exploited its propaganda value in the US in particular, for all it was worth, because one of the main planks of Churchill's grand strategy was to get the US involved, and once the US it on our side, it was only a matter of time. But. They weren't going to come in for another year so he used all this it got an awful lot of sympathy especially the blitz got a lot of sympathy ed Munro's reports and so on went all around the us and if i were asked to pinpoint the time when germany lost the war i would surprise everybody by saying it was july 1940 because that's when they decided to attack russia without having cleared their backs by defeating or coming to terms with britain That means they would have been in a two-front war and every general in Germany knew that a two-front war was a war that Germany was going to lose and they walked into it.